If you would open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think maybe it's nice for some of us to think we're not hearing again 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're now hearing 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As you're turning there, let me read you something from uh, one of the catechisms that we have in our denomination. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, it says this, How is the word of God to be read? The answer is, the holy scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the word of God, and that God only can enable us to understand them. We should read the scriptures with a desire to know him, to believe him, and to obey the will of God revealed in the scriptures. We should read them with diligence and attention to the matter and the scope of them. We shall also read the scriptures with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. Why do they give such a wordy answer? It's because we believe that this is not just another book. This is God's book. This is God's word. God is speaking today, and this is what he's speaking to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, talking about Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word, <clears throat> and it is surely, evidently, your word. But we know that our own sinful and stubborn hearts would not believe it unless, Holy Spirit, you opened our eyes. And Lord Jesus, it's the same in preaching. We will not believe the truth here unless your spirit opens the eyes of our hearts. So would you do that work? Would you do the work within us so that we might see your glory? When we might see the light of your truth, that we might see that you are the image of the invisible God. And as we see you, may we be transformed into your image. Lord Jesus, we ask all this in your holy name. Amen. You win them with what you win them to. 
you win them with what you win them to. You could also say it in the inverse, you win them to what you win them with. I'll give you an example of what this means. I remember one of my first fall semesters for RUF large group, we had advertised to people that the first 125 people who came to RUF large group, we get a free Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. I had you at Chick-fil-A. And we probably had anywhere from 150 to 175 people in the room at first. And then all of a sudden, uh, there was the welcome. And then there was the singing, and maybe a couple people went out. But then there was the reading of the Bible. And then there was the putting my head down to pray. And then there was the looking up and realizing that there was a mass exodus of people, and there was only probably about 100 people in the room. One of the lessons there that it taught me, it's not wrong to give out free food, I'm not saying that, but you realize, why did people come? They came for the Chick-fil-A sandwiches. What you win them with is what you win them to. Jesus had these same moments when, in his ministry, he would feed the 5,000. And people said, that's someone I want to be seen with. That's someone who I want to be attached to. That's a ministry that, that I want to get involved in. But then he started preaching and people went away. Here's the question about that. Whenever people leave, does that mean that the problem is with preaching? Does that mean that the problem is with God's word? Because after all, we gather a lot of people through these other things. But is the main problem why people leave, is it the word? It's often the question that is asked today. And really the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. What is our primary goal in ministry? And whenever people begin to leave, will we change things up? just to make sure we can make sure we give people what they want. That's exactly the situation Paul is dealing with. There were these false teachers who had come into the Corinthian churches, and they were seeking to not say everything the Bible was saying, to say things that scratched their itchy ears and to make them feel good about themselves. And Paul was, when he would come in to preach the gospel... People would no doubt come in and people would stay, but sometimes people would leave. And so people said, well, Paul, if you really had a true ministry, then why are people leaving? What Paul is telling us here is this, is that lots of people can come into our doors and they don't really want the gospel of grace. And the preaching and reading of God's word exposes that. Sometimes we think that Jesus needs help from us if we're going to win people to him. Sometimes we think Jesus is in need of us so that we can evangelize people effectively. One statement that I heard in seminary one time is this. Whenever we try to get God out of theological jail, we end up in theological jail. 
What Paul is telling us in this word is this. Not only does Christ not need our help, but to think that he does is the fundamental nature of pride and sin. That's why it's very important for us to remember what we win them with is what we're actually winning them to. The question is, is it the gospel of grace? Is it the word of God? Look back at our text in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Rather, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What we could easily say today is this. How do we win people to Jesus? How do we win people to Christ? Here's how you don't win people to Christ. Here's how you can win people to so many other things but Christ. One, if you want to not win people to Christ, then lose heart. You see that in verse 1, Paul says, actually, because of our gospel ministry, we don't lose heart. When he says lose heart, it means to think that we are ineffective or to think that God has forgotten us. It's the word used to uh, be afraid in the face of difficulty. Actually, interestingly, when I was studying this, this, this Greek word, lose heart, is used of women in the process sometimes of childbirth. It's to, to lose uh, motivation, to lose enthusiasm because something is very difficult. Now, let's think about Paul's situation here. Do you think Paul always felt really happy when he was doing ministry in, the, in these Corinthian churches? I mean, never did things go so well than in the Corinthian churches, right? Paul knows what that temptation was like, and he is saying, when we remember the gospel of grace, we do not lose heart. And matter of fact, that word or that phrase, we do not lose heart, it's in the present tense, meaning this that there is never any season of ministry that we lose heart, no matter what's going on. As long as we are faithful to God and his word, we do not lose heart. But it is tempting to lose heart, isn't it? It's tempting to lose motivation. It's tempting to think that God's forgotten us. When we see how big of a task ministry is and all the responsibilities that are there, it's very tempting to lose heart. We have to remember that God employs us into something that is impossible. That's literally what he sends us out to do. How would you like to have that job description? Hey, you're going to go and do this. By the way, it is totally impossible on your own. Sometimes maybe we think that because of past events in our lives or even in this church that we can lose heart. Maybe there's no way that God can work in us and through us because of something that happened in the past. Maybe we can look at certain cultural trends and ideas that are being promoted and ethics that are being abandoned and we can say, well, there's no hope for this next generation. It's just too difficult and we can lose heart. Sometimes we can look at a certain friend or family member who's left the church and we can just say, well, there's no more hope for them. 
It's very tempting to lose heart, isn't it? Even when we look at the fact that Stillwater, at least according to the latest census that I saw, because everything on the internet is always true, Stillwater has 50,000 people. Here's a question. How many of those people are actually in church? Oklahoma State has over 25,000 people at the Stillwater campus. Our own church may be small in comparison to those numbers, but nevertheless still a lot of people. It's 110 souls that will have to answer before God Almighty. Wouldn't it be tempting as you look at that and you realize nothing can happen no matter what efforts I have, nothing will happen unless it is God's mercy? That's pretty intimidating, isn't it? Let alone thinking about all the people in Oklahoma and the U.S. and North America and all over the world. To think about how many in Stillwater or OSU or even in our church, how many of those are genuinely saved. How many of those are actively pursuing Christ? How many of those are even interested in knowing Christ? How many of us are living a, a life of prayer or meditating on Christ? Are growing in knowing the Bible or having greater love for others or having sacrificial giving of time, talents, and money? It's tempting to lose heart, isn't it? Here's the question. Can the Word of God really do the work? Let's just be honest. Can the Word of God really do the work to make unbelievers believers and to make sinners more and more into the image of Christ? Can the Word of God do the work? That's what Paul is faced with. No doubt, as Paul's looking at the, these Corinthian churches, He's seeing conflict, chaos, and controversy. I've seen it over the years, and I've seen other ministers deal with it over the years, and you've seen it over the years, no doubt, in this church, but you'll see people leave. The message becomes unpopular. There's persecution. You see other churches are getting bigger. Matter of fact, they're getting bigger because they've abandoned the gospel. We see statistics show that uh, youth and college students are leaving the churches left and right. Christian leaders are failing and our evangelism efforts are seemingly fruitless. All the while, we have to remember what Scripture teaches. No one can change a dead heart. Only the Holy Spirit can convert someone and change someone and we can't manipulate the Holy Spirit. Every growth and grace of our own is a supernatural work. It is God who works in us. We do work out our salvation, but only because God works in us. Every gift that we have, whether preaching or serving, whether teaching, discipling, or organization, every gift we have is from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we're always being attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three at the same time. And then as you go about trying to do ministry, you remember, oh yeah, I myself need my own sanctification. It's tempting to lose heart, isn't it? What we have to remember is this. Every single one of us will all come to the point of temptation at least once in our life, oftentimes numerous times, where there will be a real pressure for us to change the message, to change the method, and to change the mission. 
God often allows us to go through that temptation. Not that he's tempting us, but he allows us to go through that temptation because he tests our faith. Maybe you've had that happen. Have you had that happen maybe with a friend who visited here? Maybe they walked away saying, I can't believe that preacher said that and you go to that church and you don't know how to respond. Or maybe it's because of a conversation that you had and people couldn't believe where you stood on certain issues. Maybe it's a family member who just can't believe that you go to that church or believe that religion. You see, Satan loves to discourage us with the responsibilities of ministry, the weightiness of ministry, the internal pressure and the external pressure. He loves to overwhelm us and discourage us because this is his main goal. If he can just do anything to get us to abandon the scriptures and try something else, that's his one goal. Now, if that's our greatest enemy, if that's his main goal, what do you think our main goal should be? If I can provide just a little humor relief, whenever we try to abandon scripture because we're, we don't think it works and whenever we try to change things up, it's kind of like Eskimo Joe's without their fries. It's the fries that makes Eskimo Joe's so awesome. I mean, it's more than that too, but that's kind of their big thing. When we get rid of the Bible, we lose who we actually are. There is no such thing as a Christian as someone who has abandoned the word of God. So if you want to not win people to Christ, then lose heart and abandon the word. In verse 2, we see that Paul also says we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We, if we want to not win people to Christ, let's adopt, another way to put it, is shameful schemes. That word at the very beginning of verse 2, but in this letter alone in 2 Corinthians, that, that Greek word is used 68 times in 53 verses. That's a lot. Because what Paul is doing over and over and over in this letter is he is saying, here's what is not true gospel ministry, but here's what is true gospel ministry. Paul is actually saying what makes true gospel ministry is when we have positively renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. When he says renounce, it is a word that means a strong disapproval of. It means actually there's so much disapproval of that thing that you have distanced yourself from that. Even the, the tense that it's in, it's, it's in the past tense and particularly in the original language, it means that it's been the summary of Paul's actions in all of ministry. In other words, Paul's saying, we've never flirted with these shameful schemes and we'll never flirt with these things. What are those schemes? Well, he says they're disgraceful and underhanded ways. What that is, it means secrecy and dishonesty rather than honest frankness. Here's the context that Paul's dealing with. There were these false teachers who were slandering Paul so that they could get things to go their way. They were trying to slander Paul and his ministry so that they could get the people to stop following Paul to then follow them. 
often one of the ways that that happens is by, well, let's not talk so harshly about sin and the reality of the sinner. Let's say this instead. In other words, what, what Paul is saying is this, what true gospel ministry is, true gospel ministry doesn't try to hide what it really believes in the word of God. Now, this is a, a summary quote by Martin Luther. So it's a popular quote, but the actual quote that he said is a little bit different. But this is the one that actually translates better to our modern ear. And this is what Luther said. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however bold I may be in professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the Christian soldier is proved. And to be steady on all battlefronts besides that one is mere flight and disgrace. Listen, it is very popular these days to try to stay being a popular pastor or preacher and to say a lot of different things that are according to the Bible, but the world already agrees with. It's not easy to proclaim all of Scripture. But what is the task of preaching? What is the task of the church? The task of the church is not to have a Thomas Jefferson Bible where you can just pick and choose what you want. The task of the church is to proclaim the truth and nothing but the truth, the whole truth. Because we don't set the agenda, God does. Amen? There are things today that are hard, and we must make sure we talk about them in a way that matches the gospel of grace. Remember, truth is never separated from love. I told our new members class, there's no such thing as truth without love. Because truth without love is brutality. But also at the same time, there's no such thing as love without truth because love without truth is hypocrisy. And today it's not easy to talk about what the Bible says about sexuality, but it does talk about it. It's not easy to talk about things in the matters of justice and ethnicity, but it does speak about it. It's not easy to talk about all the different areas of ethics, but the Bible does talk about that. It's not easy to talk about what the Bible says about marriage, but it talks about it. I met with a young woman early on in my time here at RUF, and she wanted to ask about what the Bible really said about homosexuality. And she was so sweet, and... I tried to speak with the most pastoral, tender voice that I could. It was a very loving, gentle conversation. But no matter what I showed her in Scripture, even when she was right there with it, she still walked away and we never saw her again. And that's hard. See, this is actually what Jesus is getting at in one way when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Because oftentimes, that cross can be dying to, to our desire for people to adore us. Paul is saying here, we don't mince words. What we say is what we mean. 
One commentator said, by saying this, Paul is saying he has utterly rejected and abandoned once for all any clever cutesiness that communicates uh, aspects of the gospel while withholding anything that might cause us to lose face. Really, the biggest thing is this. What is the primary goal that you have? What's the primary goal this church has? If the primary goal, if the primary goal is to have the world accept us, have the world love us, if that's the primary goal, then you're going to sacrifice God's truth for things that are acceptable. Now, it is very true, and Scripture says it very clearly, for God so loved the what? World. But at the same time, when God sent his son into the world, it was also an act of war because the world needs the son. When we have trying to win the world as our first goal rather than glorifying God and enjoying him forever, not only do we not have a fruitful ministry, we actually don't even end up winning the world because we just win them to whatever we try to win them with. It's hard. You think I felt really great about coming in here and preaching on this? But this is God's word. Paul says we don't practice, again in verse 2, we don't practice cunning or tampering with God's word. <clears throat> when he says practice, it means we don't walk in those things. That word for cunning is a word we could say it's we don't practice trickiness. And that's exactly what, what Satan loves to do with God's word. He loves to manipulate it. He loves to twist it. Just see how he tempted Jesus himself. Paul is saying that no matter what issues are at hand, we preach God's word. Unfortunately, often what can happen is that Christians can adopt certain viewpoints or ideologies or theories that directly contradict scripture and the gospel of grace, but then we'll just attach Christian words to them and say that we can redeem that. But often what that is like, it's like green grass on top of a grave. It looks good on the outside, but there's just dead bones underneath. That's why we must always repent of trying to be sneaky with God's truth or dishonest with God's truth. What's happened often throughout the history of the church is this. People have tried to water down what actually happened on the cross. That God's not really angry with sinners. Jesus just came to die to be an example to Christians. That you just need a little bit of help and Jesus just tried to make sure he could help you. When rather scripture says that Jesus had to go to the cross because God's wrath was coming against you and me because we've sinned against him and he is a just God. And unless Jesus takes down the wrath of God, then we will. That's not a popular thing to proclaim today. But when you understand it, it's the most glorious truth. It's the most glorious truth because if Jesus took the wrath of God, then there's no possibility for any wrath to be on me. Amen? So to try to just make people feel good is actually to deliver them into damnation. It 
sometimes what we do is we also, we blame the word. You see this in verses three and four. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, the, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What we see here implicitly is that people were blaming Paul, saying, well, clearly it's not working what you're doing. But remember, sometimes God intentionally brings us through these times so that he can test our faith, because actually the testing of our faith makes us stronger in the end. Faithfulness to God's word does not always result in massive growth in numbers. I've told the story a couple times. I remember when uh, I was in class one time and one of my professors, he looked at us and he said, all right, which, which one of you want to have a successful ministry? And we're all like, yeah, because every young seminarian is foolish. Um, and then he said, okay, now how many of you want to have a ministry like Isaiah where he says, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Which one of you want to have that ministry? Nobody. It was like the crickets that are normally in here. I don't know where you're at right now. It's the perfect timing. No one wanted that, but then he said this. Here's the question. Was Isaiah's ministry successful? It was successful. Because he was faithful to God. Faithfulness to God does sometimes bring revival whenever God pleases. But sometimes faithfulness to God gets people killed. We can blame the word of God when maybe we don't see the church going the way we, we wish it would go. And we say, well, we, we, we've tried that before. Now, we need to remember this. There is a massive difference between bad preaching versus blaming the word of God. Trust me. We, we, we can preach a dud or two. Um, it, it'll happen. Uh, but don't blame bad preaching on the word. One of my, I'm quoting my professors all the time this morning. One of my professors says, if, if that man's preaching a dud, pray for that man. But don't blame the word of God. Sometimes we blame the word of God because we feel like, well, no one's visiting. They don't want to hear what is coming from the pulpit. Or we're not seeing any fruit from our evangelism. Or we're not seeing people become more interested in Christian things. Or we're not seeing people grow more interested in reading the Bible. Or we're not seeing improvement in city or cultural renewal. Just go look at Paul when he was in Thessalonica. Because if you think, if you think, city renewal is the main thing about gospel ministry, then Paul was not a very successful minister. Because oftentimes he would go to places and they would try to kill him. So if we want to not win people to Christ, blame the word. Also do this, if we want to not win people to Christ, give people what they want. You see that in verse 4, <laughs> with the God of this world talking about Satan, how he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. Well, if he's blinded them, then what they want is not the gospel of Christ. See, one of the things we have to remember is this. It's not just that people, whenever you're dead in your sins, it's not just that you don't have the ability to become a Christian. You don't want to. 
James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, he tells us to walk by the Spirit rather than gratifying the desires of the flesh. Job 15.16 says this, that man drinks down iniquity, iniquity and sin like it's water. And we could just add on that on a hot Oklahoma day. We want sin. And one of the things that is often happening today is that we're trying to cater to what everyone wants, but the problem is, if that's your first goal, then you're very quickly going to get to the point where you don't get what God wants. So we don't talk about what the Bible says about ethics. We speak easy words to people because we just want to keep them happy with us rather than happy with God. We often cave into other people's pressure because they're telling us that we can't be or shouldn't be faithful to God's word or we shouldn't say things the way Jesus said things. We often today, we treat sin like people just need some therapy rather than salvation. We lower the standards of God's law and we make people comfortable in their sin. I remember hearing about a minister who, I'm not going to say what denomination or where he's at, but I remember hearing about a minister who I've been able to talk with a couple times, and uh, he was kicked out of his church because the church leaders wanted their church to be like the other churches in town and just be a very attractional church. But this man was week in, week out, faithful to the Word of God. That's how denominations fail, by the way. That's how churches fail. Now, here's the thing. We don't be Westboro Baptist or Sister Cindy or Preacher Bob. We, we, we don't do that. By the way, they're not preaching the truth. But you don't have that tone. Now, we do preach the law. And whenever we preach the law, the law's heavy. But you don't only preach the law, do you? The law has no power in and of itself. You know, the goal for the first part of this sermon was to lay us all low, but not to stay there and say, go forth and do likewise. No, we bring in the gospel, but even when we bring in the gospel, we also don't do like what Andy Stanley is doing, and this is a very public thing, where he's rejected the Old Testament, and he's rejected biblical sexuality. We don't proclaim ourselves because a ministry that's proclaiming self is just a ministry that we want to win people to us rather than God. I remember one pastor saying, one of the biggest problems with preaching ministry today is because people don't want to kill their preachers anymore. That was when I was already in seminary. I remember thinking, oh joy. That's how you, not, that's how you don't win people to Christ. Because no one's going to come to a, a savior if they don't know they need saving. So how do we win people to Christ? Look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. If you want to win people to Christ, depend upon his mercy. Amen? When Paul says, having this mercy, it's in the present tense, meaning this, that we always have God's mercy. God is not dependent upon us. Thank goodness, right? God commands us to pursue holiness, but he's not dependent 
upon us. Brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven, we will be so stunned at the free, absolute free grace of God. Because when we look at him and when we see what he has transformed us into being, there won't be an ounce in us that will say, I did this. We will say, we are nothing but the grace of God. And that is always the case in ministry. Every growth in godliness, every gift that he has given us, however he's equipped us, it's all by his mercy. Because if it wasn't, this church wouldn't be here. No churches would be here. But what we do if we want to win people to Christ, Paul says this in verse 2, we make an open statement of the truth. In other words, we can say this, you say it how it is. We trust that explaining God's word the way God's word is, that is the power of God. Amen? God's word is powerful. We don't, we don't make it powerful. What do you do if you want to let a lion defend itself? <laughs> now, let me make sure this lion gets some help. Because if any animal in this kingdom needs help, it's a lion. No. You let that baby out. The Bible doesn't need our help. We just let it roar. Amen? We let it speak. We let it hold first priority in the church. No matter who we come across in Stillwater, what do they need most? They need the Word. What do believers need in order to continue to grow in the gospel? What do you need most? The Word. Say it as it is. We also do this. Verse 2 says, we speak to the conscience. We don't just say the gospel is just this thing out there. No, no, no. We say the gospel gets uncomfortably close. It, 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 it invades your space. But that's where God applies the gospel of grace. Why does he give his law that convicts us so deeply of sin that is so horrendous? Because he applies his grace right there. Listen, I don't want anything else but the gospel of grace to do the work. I don't want to just see my sin and then say, well, let me just go about this Christian life and just, let me just feel really bad. And then when I feel really bad for so long, then I'll feel really good. No, no, give me the gospel of grace so that I might know that Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient for that sin. Amen? I want to make sure that God says, I'm satisfied. I'm not calling you to give me anything else to be saved or to stay saved. That's why we apply it right there to the conscience. Unfortunately, when we do so, it's kind of like the time when I'm a veterinarian's son, so we keep a lot of leashes in the back of our cars. Sometimes there are lost dogs or dogs that are hit by a car. And one time